this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. So we're in the first Sunday of Advent, and we have a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, you know the time. It's the hour now for you to wake from sleep, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and lust, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. You know, there's some interesting stuff in this reading and as it confronts Greco-Roman culture, because Israel and the Greek and Roman world, the Mediterranean world in general, are, are like from two different planets. And it runs through the readings in the Old Testament, but it has to be kind of pointed out. We as Christians think orgies and drunkenness, this is not Christianity. Promiscuity and lust, oh, we all have our temptations, but no, we draw the line. And then rivalry and jealousy, it sounds like garden variety sins, except maybe the or orgies part. Um, but there's a lot more going on in this reading than just that. So let's take a moment, and in this Oral Valley Catholic, let's dive into Greco-Roman culture and the culture of Israel and the clash that we see in this letter to the Romans. So in this episode of Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about an ancient Greek tragedy written in 405 BC by Euripides called the Bacchae. We're going to talk about a Roman festival called Lupercalia, and then this updated version that the great novelist Donna Tartt did, who was a convert to the Catholic faith, called The Secret History, which was published in 1992. And I want to kind of hold up the imaginative world that these uh, festivals from the ancient world and Miss Tart's uh, novel kind of hold for the Catholic reader and why you probably should take the time to read uh, certainly The Secret History, what a great story by a great writer, but also the Bacchae. But let's go into the scriptural background. Paul's letter to the Romans. So Paul's writing this letter to the Romans because he wants to visit Rome, raise money, and take a mission to Spain he wants to go out to the furthest edges of the earth because, you know, past Spain, there's nothing but the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, doesn't even know about Oro Valley. But in Romans, which is one of the most quoted letters from St. Paul, do you remember that often, and this was a big part of the Reformation and the Lutherans, where Catholics were um, accused of putting their trust for their salvation in the works of the law. And so the portion of Romans that we read today for the first Sunday in Advent is from Romans 12. But works of the law, let us throw off the works of darkness, is what St. Paul says in Romans 12. But it's a play on something he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which is what Martin Luther uh relied on when he attacked this Catholic understanding of faith that works. You, you're saved by faith, but it's faith that works. And so here's what Romans 3.20 says. For, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And because you have knowledge of sin, this is how you fall. But the idea of his idea of works of the law was the idea that you have to do this Christian action and that Christian action. You need to avoid sin. For Luther in the Reformation, we were simultaneously justified in sinners, uh, an imputed righteousness. You see this shows up in, in a lot of Protestant art, like John Donne's poems. Uh, uh, it shows up. Uh, there's a, uh, a, an Anglican uh, poet from the 17th century. Or in John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, the idea that salvation doesn't transform us. This is the Catholic understanding of the spiritual life. But instead, it's just imputed to us. And so that phrase, works of the law, is a key one. But um, Martin Luther just didn't have all the information he needed to understand what St. Paul meant by the works of the law. I've been reading through a great book, which I recommend to you. It's by Dr. John Bergsma. And the title of the book is called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. As you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in caves right around the Second World War outside a community of Qumran, which I think scholars pretty unanimously agree that it was an Essene community, which um, was a group that was very concerned with ritual purity, was uh, very disheartened by what was happening in the temple. May have had some links with John the Baptist and Jesus, according to Dr. Bergsma. But the key thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that it was a scroll that in English is entitled Some of the Works of the Law. And what Dr. Bergsma points out in this book, not a long read, a great read, great background to scripture studies. Dr. Bergsma says that what comes very clear from the Dead Sea Scrolls is the Essenes and the Pharisees um, debated back and forth about what works of the law brought ritual purity because they were very concerned about ritual purity. And works of the law really had more to do with uh, ritual purity than what you and I would think of as, uh, as morality. So uh, Dr. Bergsma writes th about the, some of the works of the law. This text is a letter from the men of Qumran to the Pharisees in Jerusalem concerning 20 or so different issues of ritual purity, including how to handle leather, dogs, corpse corpses, liquids poured from one vessel to another, and similar matters. Not about morality as you and I would think about it, but how you keep from becoming unclean. According to the Essenes, according to Dr. Bergsma, the Pharisees were too loose in their practice of the ritual laws of Moses. So the men of Qumran wrote to exhort them to greater diligence. And so it's the difference between being a very strict group, the Pharisees were all about holiness, and then an even stricter group called the Essenes. It's not what Martin Luther thought it was about. It was about religious practice and purity. So when St. Paul is talking about works of the law, and you remember he is a Pharisee, he says in several of his letters, he was taught by, I believe, Gamaliel. Uh, when he uses works of the law, most likely he's using it in this sense that you're not saved by ritual purity. You're not saved by avoiding corpses or leather. You're not saved by this 
um, this washing before you get to the temple. You're not saved by offering the blood of bulls and goats and rams, but you're saved by your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And it's a faith that actually works. So in chapter 12 of Romans, where he parallels the phrase works of the law with a phrase describing Greco-Roman culture as works of darkness, he's talking about their ritual purity, their understanding of ritual. Here's what he says. Let us then throw off works of darkness, because Paul is writing Romans. Probably there are Jews that, are, uh, that this letter is directed to, but also the larger Gentile community um, that is, uh, lives in Rome. And so let us throw off works of darkness is his concern about not getting caught up in the, the whole ritual world of Greco-Roman festivals and sacrifice. And then he says, and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and lust, not in rivalry and jealousy. I want to stop there. I don't want to focus on something that he said. Orgies and drunkenness, promiscuity and lust. So is he just being redundant? Because orgies are these large sexual parties. Wouldn't promiscuity and lust covered it? Well, what I'm going to suggest to you is that what he has in mind are rituals called Lupercalia and Dionysian rituals, which ritual and ritualize and fetishize sexual behavior and drunkenness. St. Paul isn't just criticizing garden variety, dirty thoughts, or uh, sexual indiscretions, or having that third scotch. Uh, what he's really talking about is entering into worship of Dionysius, or Pan in the Roman sense, um, for, uh, with this fetishized sexual uh, orgies. So in Paul's time, um, there was a feast in Rome called Lupercalia. They think that it comes, is rooted in the word lupus, which is for wolf, but that it probably comes uh, from a Greek root that had to do with worship of Pan. And you may know that Pan and Satyrs are the companions of Dionysius and are parts of Dionysian ritual. So the Lupercalia and Dionysian uh, ritual, which I'll talk about in a moment, aren't the same thing, uh, but there's a, constant, uh, there's a, a common theme of uh, fetishizing sexual behavior uh, and drunkenness and putting the things together. So in the Rome that Paul's writing, the sacrificial feast of Lupercalia, which took place around the Palatine Hill, after which the Luperci cut thongs known as Februa, because the festival is actually in February, from the flayed skin of an animal, and ran with these, naked or at least near naked, along the old Palatine boundary in an anti-clockwise direction around the Palatine Hill. Plutarch, an ancient Roman, uh, described Lupercalia in one of his publications as Many of the noble youths and of the magistrates run up and down through the city naked for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. And many women of rank also purposefully get in their way. 
and, like children at school, present their hands to be struck, believing that the pregnant will thus be helped in delivery and the barren to pregnancy. So Paul has in mind um, the, the sexual overtones, and from other writers, other things happened also. Uh, not Although the Romans were a much sterner group than the Greeks, uh, we never really think of as the Romans as being the great um, carriers of Christian and Jewish morality. Uh, but Paul seems to be directing this part of his letter uh, to Gentiles who are having trouble leaving Roman ritual behind. The, root, the word that he uses in uh, his letter to the Romans is komois, and komois orgies is associated with leprechalia, uh, lupercalia, but also um, this older version, which is still very alive in the Greek and Roman world, uh, the Dionysian Bacchanal. Uh, Dionysius and Bacchus, Bacchus is the Roman version of Dionysus. Um, the Dionysian, we don't know much about it because it was a secret cult, but Euripides, a famous Greek playwright in uh, 405 BC, wrote a play, which is a great play. It's his most famous work, I think, called the Bacchae. And it's a story about how Dionysius, who is Zeus's son, comes to the town of Thebes, the city of Thebes, to confront the king there, uh, a man named Pentheus. Um, you see, Dionysius' mom is a woman named Semele. She had an affair with Zeus, and then she was killed tragically. But Zeus saved Dionysius, the man-god, from her womb, and then gave birth to Dionysius from, I think, his thigh. He gave birth to his daughter, Pallas Athena, uh, from his head. But Semele had two sisters that tortured her, three sisters, I think. But these two play, uh, are in the play, Agave and uh, Io. And they're all Semele, Agave, and Io are, Cad, are the daughters of Cadmus. So Dionysius wants to take revenge on Cadmus and Agave and Io because of what they did to his mom. So he's showing up, and uh, bad things are going to happen. So he confronts Pentheus, and the, you'll have to read the play, but Pentheus has him arrested, but Dionysius, and oh, and uh, chained to a mad bull, which doesn't sound like fun, but uh, Dionysius calms the bull, wrecks the palace with an earthquake, and then basically seduces Pentheus, gets him to dress like a woman, which is completely degrading to Pentheus, and uh, has him led out into the hills where he's going to try to spy on his mom, his aunt Io, and all the women of Thebes who Dionysius has cast a spell on. And they're all up in the hills, blasted, and apparently engaging, at least Pentheus thinks, maybe they were, in some um, Dionysian orgy of madness. Well, Pentheus goes up into the hill, hills to, to spy on them, but Dionysius uses his power, because uh, Pentheus gets up in a tree to spy on him, to bend the tree down so these crazed women uh, in this Dionysian ecstasy get Pantheus, basically pull him apart and dismember him in a Dionysian ecstasy. And then mom, Agafe, proudly goes back to Thebes so she can show her dad, Cadmus, 
the head of her son, which she thinks is the head of a panther that she carries under her arm. Don't you just love the Greeks? What interesting stories. No one writes this stuff anymore. So think about that for a minute. Uh, the son of the head god, Dionysius, son of Zeus, comes to show up in the town where his mom is from because he's been disrespected, people saying he's not a god. How does he prove he's god? He shows up and he destroys the town, destroys the king in a degrading fashion, uh, destroys his aunts who dared to cross him. But if you think about it, um, think about why the gospel's told the way that it is and why what happened in the gospel takes on completely the Greek notion of God. So God the Father sends his son, right? Is it take revenge on the earth or is it exactly the opposite of what the Greeks say? Uh, that the Son of God doesn't come uh, to destroy us, but to bring communion to us, and he gives his life on the cross. So this is one of those interesting parallels that you can't say is direct, but it's interesting. Do you remember when um, Jesus is tried? Instead of the king of Thebes, it's the governor, the Roman governor who confronts him and says, Ecce homo, behold the man, and has him led off and imprisoned and crucified. Does Jesus use his power to break out of prison? Because that's the temptation, just like last week in the gospel. If you are the son of God, come off that cross. Dionysus, if you're the son of God, let's get rid of these uh, crummy Greeks and their uh, crummy ants. This is the, this is the work of God in the gospel, which is exactly opposite uh, to, than the works of the, the Greek gods. And so God doesn't come and uh, desire destruction. And so when St. Paul is talking about putting on the armor of light and getting past the passions of the, of the, of the, uh, of the flesh, um, he's looking exactly at the Dionysian rituals, which is always about empowering the desires of the flesh. E.J. Dobbs, a famous commentator on Greek tragedy, said that the Greeks did a terrific job in their, in their tragedies of talking about the rational, the irrational, and the non-rational. You can look at that play, The Bacchae, and how it turns out, and you can shake your head and say, the gods are horrible. Don't get messed up with them because they'll make you irrational. They'll take the non-rational parts of your nature. These are these sexual impulses, the desire towards drunkenness, and they'll undermine your reason. Um, but in that play, the Bacchae, everything, everybody's destroyed. And so think about the gospel today, um, which is the gospel where Jesus says, for the first Sunday of Advent um, in, in the gospel, uh, he talks about the days of Noah, and here's what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the, the flood, they were eating and drinking, think Dionysian rituals, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it also be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Well, Dionysius showed up one day, right? Absolute destruction. So there is at least some uh, consistency between this uh, prophecy about the future. But you know the Left Behind series where what happens is your punishment get left behind and all the saints go to heaven? What nonsense. He's talking about the flood, which means people will be destroyed. So the Greeks said something right about God. You don't mess with God. But I want to take a moment and talk about a great modern novel by Donna Tartt called The Secret History, which plays with the gospel and plays with these ancient Greek ideas, and especially the play of the Bacchae, with an idea that, hey, maybe this Advent you'll read it and you'll find um, a great way of thinking about all of these uh, issues. Uh, in the Catholic faith today. The Gospel of Matthew about Noah and the flood and the end times is a judgment story. It's not about uh, Nicolas Cage and the Left Behind movies. Uh, when Noah uh, gets in the ark and everybody else is left behind, they're all destroyed. That's the story of Noah. And this is consistent with how Jesus looks at the end of the world in the final judgment. It's what St. Paul talks about when he says, the day is coming, we're mostly through the night, take off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And that is very much at the root of the novel, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, published in 1992. I think it sold out its first printing and moved on from there, and Tartt's been a very successful novelist. She was a convert to the Catholic faith in her uh, undergraduate years. I think it was in her undergraduate years, and it shows in her novel, but although I'll explain a little later about how she thinks about being a Catholic novelist, which is a very wonderful perspective on it all. But here's the story of the secret history. So Richard Papian goes to school out in Plano, California, has no religious background, no particularly uh, strong ethnic background. His parents' marriage is kind of, I guess, respectful, but doesn't seem to be particularly affectionate. Uh, he is kind of just kind of not a zero, but there's he's a tabula rasa. There's not a lot there. But he gets the scholarship to Hampton College in Vermont. So he moves to this prestigious college with the intention of being an English literature major. Because as we all know, English literature majors make the big bucks. Or maybe they just do it because... They're trying to find out what it means to be a human being, and literature is such a tremendous way of encountering the great thinkers of the present and the past about what it means to be a human being. It's why you read The Secret History. Well, The Secret History is Richard goes to Hampton College, doesn't really get to be an English major. Instead, he gets into Greek and Latin classics because there's these five undergraduates there uh, Francis and Henry, Camilla and uh, her brother Charles, and a guy named Bunny. Uh, and uh, he thinks it's so interesting. He, he really pursues this because he wants to get into this class with Dr. Julian. And Dr. Julian is this like um, a Mephistopheles character. You know, you always wonder if he's satanic because he spreads this, uh, this, this kind of 
mythos about how great Dionysius was. And boy, if we could just go back to the pagan world, this elitist pagan world. Really an awful world, friends. St. Paul lived in it, and he tells you the truth about it. So the story, the secret history, is actually an inverted, an inverted murder mystery story. You find out that Bunny gets killed, and his body is found in a snowdrift um, at the very beginning of the novel. Then after that, what happens is, is the story of how he gets murdered unravels, and then how the murderers unravel, and then the conclusion, which I'll, I'll talk about at the end because I thought it was remarkable enough uh, to, and why it's a, a good book to read. So the professor gets all these five young people into the class, and he's, uh, they're drilling on Greek, they're drilling on Latin, and he's encouraging them, especially Henry, who's kind of the leader, a kind of a darkly charismatic uh, young person, um, to go and reenact the Dionysian rituals. And remember, they're orgies and drunkenness, um, but that you encounter the God in the midst of all of this. You, you transcend the merely human. And in the novel, here's how uh, Professor Julian describes the Dionysian mysteries. And so you see what's uh, attractive about them. He says, if we are strong enough in our souls, we can rip away the veil and look that naked, terrible beauty right in the face. Let God consume us, devour us, unstring our bones, then spit us out, reborn. And that, to me, is the terrible seduction of Dionysiac ritual. Hard for us to imagine, that fire of pure being. So for a bunch of kids who are lost, and by the way, she drops the, the line that um, everybody but Bunny and Richard are uh, lapsed Catholics. So uh, that's one of the, the fun things about the novel, but it's just like one line. So it's why being a Catholic and reading it, you get a very different read on this story than, say, uh, someone who's more of a zero when it comes to understanding the, the uh, literary and cultural and religious background of Catholicism. But there's one scene I have to tell you about. It's this comic setup. So they're going to go up and do this Dionysiac ritual up in this mysterious mansion up in the hills of Vermont. And so they go to this dorm party because a couple of the members, like Richard, they're at the dorm party, and they want to get them so they can go out to this Dionysiac orgy out in the hills. So when they get to the dorm party, it's kind of what you hear about dorm parties. People are blasted. They're having sex in the stairwells. Friends, the way Donna Tart describes a freshman door party, it is a Dionysiac ritual. So the comic irony is that they take him from this one supposedly ecstatic experience, and of course it's not, to another supposedly uh, ecstatic experience that really isn't either. Results in the murder of a farmer, then Bunny blackmails everybody about it. Bunny ends up dead, and then the whole thing begins to unravel. And it uh, comes to its bloody end when the leader, Henry, commits suicide. So this is how the novel ends. But it's worth reading, and you can just cut out of this if you don't want to know the end. Richard has a dream, and Henry comes to him in a dream. It's very much like the ancient world, these gods uh, appearing in dreams. And in fact, he's appearing to everybody in dreams. But he's stuck between two worlds. Uh, in this dream, he can't get his passport. 
If you're a pagan, you say, well, no one gave him coins to pay Charon so he could get across the river Styx into Hades. And that's a good pagan reading of it because it works just fine. But for Catholics, it's hard not to see Henry is in purgatory. But he simply can't respond to the truth. All he is is fixated on the past, which is the problem of the Dionysiac experience. But that's not the best part of the end. The best part of the end is this. Remember, they're all lapsed Catholics, except for Richard, who's not. So he travels to Boston, and there he sees Camilla, who had been having an incestuous relationship with her brother, who has now taken off with an older woman. Just these two screwed up young people. Then the ex-addict, Francis. And Francis and Camilla gather Richard, and it's Ash Wednesday, so they take him to Mass. And they all go up, and they all get ashes put on their forehead, and then um, they hear the words, remember that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. And then this was what uh, Tart, the Catholic convert, writes. The three of us stayed in our seats as the pews emptied, and the long, shuffling line started towards the altar again. In that moment, he gets up to go to the altar, but his friends grab him. Why? Because he's not ready to meet God. Pentheus wasn't ready to meet the god Dionysius, right? And it destroyed them. And his friends understand that there's a power to God. Camilla and Francis restrain him. And that's pretty much, for me, where the novel kind of ends. This possibility of repentance. You know, here's what uh, Tart wrote about being a Catholic convert and a Catholic writer. And it's in an essay she wrote in a book called The Novel, Spirituality, and Modern Culture. She does not mind being known as a Catholic writer, though here's how she understands it. The spirit in writing in a secular world, she wrote, faith is vital in the process of making my work and in the reasons I'm driven to make it. You know, she also did The Goldfinch, and you could see her Catholicism in that too. Donna Tartt, a modern novelist, worthy of your attention. But remember, we live in a time when the occult is on the rise. The works of darkness are always around us. So in this Advent, just once again, resolve to yourself to take off the works of darkness. Don't focus on uh, all of these false promises of false gods. Instead, friends, put on the armor of light because like with Donna Tartt in her novel, your faith is the vital part of making the work of your life something beautiful to present God to God so that when you meet him, you're prepared for the encounter. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like. Goodbye now.